welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. I'm Jane Winter, the Account Director at Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. Today, we're talking about cancer-related malnutrition. Um, People undergoing cancer treatment commonly face complex nutritional issues, and that's, of course, dictated by the type of cancer, the site of the cancer, treatment path, and then their age, their previous health, and any other coexisting conditions. It can be difficult for the patients and their healthcare providers to find the most relevant and evidence-based information because we know there's just so much misinformation out there. COSA is the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia, representing health professionals from all disciplines whose work involves the care of cancer patients. COSA has a nutrition group, and today I'm really pleased to have uh, not one or two, but I have three dietitians joining me who are involved in the COSA Nutrition Group and work across different settings. So let me introduce them to you. Janelle Loliga is the Joint Head of the Nutrition and Speech Pathology Department at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Recently, she stepped into the role of Director of Allied Health. She's an advanced APD and has plenty of experience in the field of oncology. She's been involved in the development of national evidence-based nutrition oncology guidelines and position statements and has provided leadership to the statewide program of work, Victorian Cancer Malnutrition Collaborative. And I hate to say it, but Janelle was actually a student of mine when I worked at Deakin University a few years ago. Um, Louise Moody is also an advanced accredited practicing dietitian, and she has clinical and leadership experience across Northern Territory and Queensland with a strong interest and experience in oncology and the provision of dietetic services to those living in rural, regional and remote areas and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And our third dietitian is Lauren Atkins, also an advanced accredited practicing dietitian and an accredited nutritionist with expertise in oncology and haematology. She's worked in cancer care and survivorship for more than 10 years and has co-founded her own business, Encore Nutrition. She's got vast experience in using good nutrition to help prevent, manage and overcome cancer from diagnosis through to survivorship and palliation. Lauren's um, also undertaken advanced training in natural and integrative medicine to better advise individuals and groups on the safe and appropriate use of complementary therapies. She has her own free-to-access podcast, Encore Nutrition, Two Bees in a Podcast. So I might just be able to step away from this podcast and let Lauren take over the show. Um, Quickly, before we get started, this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only. We advise you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use any of the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. Okay, so let's let's get started. Um, and welcome to all of you. Thanks for joining me today. It's really nice to have you here. Thanks for having us, Jane. 
Thanks, Jane. So, Janelle, let's let's start with you. Um, now, you were involved in in writing and developing um, the COSA malnutrition guidelines. You can give me the proper title, probably. But can you just give us an overview? How important is nutrition in the context of cancer care? Yeah, thanks, Jane. Thanks for having us. Um, look, I think nutrition plays an incredibly critical role in cancer care, and that spans across all cancer diagnoses, all cancer treatments, and at all time points. So optimal nutrition will help a patient prepare, get through, recover, and live their best life with cancer. So a dietitian's role is certainly integral to delivering and supporting optimal nutrition care, but we as, as clinicians are only one part of that puzzle, and it takes a multitude of, of multidisciplinary team members processes and systems and the ability to adapt that will help achieve that. So as a dietitian, I'm incredibly passionate about delivering good, uh, you know, and optimal nutrition care to our patients and supporting them, supporting their families and carers as well, as is Lauren and Louise who are here today as well. Yeah, and I think I think that's a good point. And we've just had malnutrition week um, in October and something that came out, a theme that came out across all areas of work for dietitians is that we can't fix this problem on our own and it really does take everyone who's involved in the care from the patient themselves through to their family, carers, other allied health, doctors, everyone has to play a role here. So I think that that's a really good point. So can you just explain, Janelle, a bit um, about sort of how malnutrition and sarcopenia, which might be a slightly newer concept for people in this area, and cancer overlap? Yeah, of course. Um, so I might just explain a bit about um, firstly malnutrition and then kind of go into sarcopenia. So um, I think our listeners will be more familiar with malnutrition and cancer-related malnutrition. But we do see, you know, uh, around about 30 to 40% of people with cancer diagnosed with malnutrition. We can certainly see higher rates than that in certain patient groups like our head and neck or our upper GI or a lung cancer population. Um, in comparison to sarcopenia, it's probably uh, slightly less studied than malnutrition, if you like, but a, an absolutely emerging area in the cancer field. Um, and, and current literature suggests that up to 60% of people with cancer can have sarcopenia. People with cancer can have both. They can have both malnutrition and sarcopenia simultaneously, or it might just be one um, at a time. They both have relatively similar negative clinical consequences. Um, and, and I suspect everyone's pretty familiar with those, but, you know, just to, to recap, those with, with either malnutrition or sarcopenia um, tend to have um, an increased risk of infections. They have um, often don't cope with cancer treatment as well, might have um, interruptions. They're more likely to have a longer length of stay or be admitted to hospital um, and a poorer quality of life. Um, and then, of course, there's negative economic consequences of both of those conditions um, as well. So, um, so I think really sarcopenia is kind of the new kid on the block, if you like, um, and an area that we're learning more about day and day. There's a lot of um, emerging literature in this area. And can you just quickly explain what sarcopenia just in a nutshell is, as opposed to what malnutrition is for people that might not be dietitians who are listening? 
Yeah, so we find so malnutrition is characterised by a loss of weight, a loss of muscle and a loss of subcutaneous body fat. Whereas sarcopenia is, is similar, it's characterised by a loss of skeletal muscle mass and strength, but it's where it has an impact on physical performance and it can be seen as a key component of cancer-related malnutrition. Um, so there's a much higher emphasis on, on uh, muscle mass, strength, and, and function as well when you're talking about sarcopenia. Yeah, and so I think that's the critical difference, isn't it? Sarcopenia, you're really talking about that loss of mass and strength, not just loss of muscle mass. So so COSA have developed uh, evidence-based statement or best practice guidelines. Um, how, how have they come about? Yeah, so, so COSA um, and really led by our cancer nutrition executive group of which um, Lauren and Louise and myself were all part of. Um, so the position statement uh, is focused on cancer-related malnutrition and sarcopenia. The work was led um, primarily by Associate Professor um, Nicole Kish, um, who's based at Deakin University, um, but the rest of the nutrition executive team. And um, we engaged a multidisciplinary working group of COSA members and a few other people, um, and that very much was a multidisciplinary group. It absolutely had dietitians involved, but it also had nurses, GPs, exercise physiologists, um, amongst others. So um, together we developed this position statement, and really it was to outline the role of health professionals um, and health services in recognising and treating patients with cancer-related malnutrition and sarcopenia with a practical focus, so including tips to support the implementation of optimal management of both of those conditions. So I think um, from my understanding, it sort of goes through each of the different components. Um, and so the position statement starts off with um, recommendations around identification and screening. Can you just give us in a nutshell, what that those recommendations should be about identification and screening for malnutrition? Yeah, so there's two recommendations that come under that part of the position statement. So the first one is focused on malnutrition. So it's all patients or all people with cancer should be screened for malnutrition in all health settings at diagnosis and then repeated as the clinical situation changes. And it's important to note that this is, should be done with a screening tool that's valid and reliable in the setting in which it's meant to be used. So the, the second recommendation um, is focused on sarcopenia, and that is that all people with cancer should be screened for sarcopenia at diagnosis. And then, like malnutrition, repeated as things change clinically, and again, using a validated screening tool. So thinking about putting those things into practice that that routine and standard um, screening. If we can ask um, Louise, how have you or have you implemented these where you work? Yes, Shane, um, we've definitely implemented the malnutri malnutrition side of things. At the moment, we haven't got to the sarcopenia, but I think it's really important to really embed that early identification and screening into the services you, that you've got available locally. So, from a rural context, for example, that could be a cancer service or it could be a community health service, GP or Aboriginal medical service. So certainly at sites that I've worked at that have a cancer service, um, malnutrition screening was a standard component of chemotherapy and radiotherapy nursing assessment sheets. And that way it's really just embedded into the day-to-day -day workflow. 
So that's um, nurses that do it? Sorry. Yeah. So at the sites that I've worked at, it's been nursing staff. Otherwise, it could be an allied health assistant. In some cases, it could even be the patient screening themselves when they attend the centre as well. Uh, what um, screening tool do you use? We use the MST, so the malnutrition screening mm-hmm. tool. Um, that's the predominant one that I've seen used in Australian settings here, definitely. Yeah. Um, at sites that don't have a cancer centre, um, so particularly maybe rural sites or if you're private practice, it could be looking at other options that you've got. So again, it could be the patient screening themselves or ensuring you've got like really good relationships with the health service providers who are already engaged with cancer patients. So maybe that could be community nurses or occupational therapists or social workers. They might be able to be the ones who flag these patients for you. Yeah, um, and just sorry to put into context for people that may not be dietitians listening, the MST is really easy because you're basically looking at weight change and appetite. And appetite, absolutely. It's it's something that's only two to three questions long, can be done in under one or two minutes, um, could definitely be done by, by the patient or their carer. Um, or, or by a health professional as well. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also important to incorporate um, that early identification of those other factors that are high risk of malnutrition, and they're outlined in the COSA position statement. So these are factors like the certain cancer diagnoses, like head and neck or gastrointestinal tumours. Um, we know that they're high risk of malnutrition, um, as are certain treatments like radiotherapy to anywhere along the gastrointestinal tract or certain treatments that might have more gastrointestinal toxicities, as well as advanced stage disease in older patients. So ensuring that we've got a referral pathway for those patients as well is important. So those patients essentially are saying would be considered at risk of malnutrition just by virtue of their demographics or their type of cancer or site. Absolutely, yes. So sometimes some centres choose not to screen those high-risk patients. They become an automatic referral, whereas other sites, it might still undergo that screening process. Yeah. And and so, Lauren, what about you? Do you do anything differently to that? or well, Looking from a private practice standpoint, as Louise mentioned, so important to have sound relationships with the multidisciplinary clinicians that you work with, even if it's not under the same roof, um, because our opportunity to screen as a private practice clinician is only those who actually reach our door where if we can connect and collaborate more broadly with other clinicians working in the community broadly, that enables far more screening to actually happen. And so, yeah, um, as an organisation, that's where our focus has been on actually awareness raising, educating multidisciplinary clinicians about the importance of cancer-related malnutrition, sarcopenia, so everyone can work towards making a difference. So where do your, in a private practice setting and oncology being your sort of area of expertise, where do your referrals come from? Very varied. So we get a lot of referrals directly from oncologists, um, but also from allied health professionals. So we're actually co-located with uh, groups of exercise physiologists and physios who work in cancer care. So a lot of cross collaboration and cross referrals happening there. But we also get a lot of referrals from cancer nurses and cancer organisations. So groups like um, PanCare, Breast Cancer Network, who um, have calls coming in that that they're doing that screening uh, and then they may not have the opportunity to be linked in with their treating hospital. They um, The referrals might be made through to our service. 
So how do you get the message out to those referrers? Because I assume that's where you want the screening to take place because yeah. you want the, them to be referred on the basis of the screening. You don't need to screen because yeah. you can do an assessment. But how, how do you, um, as dietitians, get that message out to mm. some of the primary care providers or even the oncologists about nutrition screening? Yeah, look, good question, Jane. And there's only so much that one, two, three little dietitians can do to spread that message. But I do want to reinforce that every interaction with a health professional who works in cancer care counts. So don't discount every letter you write, every phone call you make. Use that as an educational opportunity for clinicians working in cancer. But a huge body of work has been undertaken and continues to be undertaken by the Victorian Cancer Malnutrition Collaborative, the VCMC. Lots of resources exist, lots of energy going into educating uh, primary care clinicians in the community to support that awareness and, and advocate for more screening um, where it's perhaps needed most when people aren't so connected to the hospital anymore. Yeah. So then um, uh, screening is is an important part of the identification. So if we move on to um, assessment, Louise, what are your what do the guidelines say about assessment? Yes, Jane. So both um, malnutrition and sarcopenia, really those that have been identified as being at risk of um, should be undergoing. Uh, should be undergoing the, then a full assessment for the malnutrition or sarcopenia or both using appropriate um, assessment tools, which I'll mention shortly. So the assessment should be undertaken as early as possible and repeated as the clinical situation changes. So this could be having an assessment before treatment commences. It could also be if there's a change to treatment, like going from radiotherapy to chemotherapy or if treatment intent changes as well. And those assessments should be conducted by trained health professionals. So that could be by the dietitian or it could be from input from other multidisciplinary team members. So whether that's an exercise physiologist or physiotherapist or another allied health or medical professional. Then if we're looking at malnutrition in particular, um, those validated nutrition assessment tools we'd be using are tools like PGSGA or SGA. And both of these align with the GLIM criteria around malnutrition. And then with sarcopenia, as we mentioned before, there's no real global consensus on the definition. And so that means it really involves a combination of assessments, looking at muscle, muscle mass, strength and functional assessments. Um, and the codes of position statement really gives a great overview of those different definitions um, and appropriate tools to use as well. So all of the definitions do provide um, Oh, sorry, that are provided and a lot of the, uh, the current cancer-specific sarcopenia research involves a lot of use of imaging such as CT or DEXA, MRI, BIA. However, most of us are not going to have access to those imaging um, or we're not going to be able to undertake training or haven't undertaken training in interpretation of imaging or we might not have the capacity to be able to incorporate this into our day-to-day -day practice. Um, however, one of the definitions in the position statement is the European Working Group on Sarcopenia and Older People too, and it uses a combination of bedside tools. So it looks at muscle strength using grip strength or chair stands, and it also looks at muscle function through gait speed, the short physical battery uh, performance battery, timed up or go, timed up and go, or a 400 meter walk. So, as a dietitian, these might seem a bit foreign 
foreign to us, especially yeah. initially. Um, but certainly these are things that we can develop the skills in and knowledge in and would be able to undertake these assessments in a variety of settings. Or if not, it would be utilising our MDT colleagues to be able to assist with these assessments. Yeah, I, I remember listening to a geriatrician talk. It was quite some years ago when sarcopenia was a bit newer even, and he said that his assessment was when a, a patient walks into his office, he puts his hand on their shoulder in greeting and shakes their hand and he can feel their muscle mass around the shoulder and he can see what their grip strength is like in, in the handshake. Um, and I thought that was a really nice, it's hard to document it objectively, but it was a really nice kind of screen, if you like. 100%. I remember still, I think, the first day of uni learning SGAs and I think that was how our lecturer described it as well. You can basically do that SGA as the patient walks in the door. And, you know, some of these um, sort of the muscle function tests will involve a patient standing up and sitting down from a chair potentially a number of times, obviously not in that short time frame that you would do a typical, say, chair stand test in, or they might be walking the distance um, from the waiting room to your office or to your consult room. So, you know, you're going to be able to get a good idea um, even without doing those full um, full assessments, but definitely if you can do do the full sarcopenia assessment, that's definitely warranted. Yeah. So, Lauren, in a private practice setting, how do you go about um, assessing? I guess more specifically for sarcopenia than malnutrition. Mm. That's why we're so fortunate to have our buddies in under the same roof. That we're so lucky to have EPs and physios that we collaborate with, because, like Louise said, it's new and scary to consider doing a 400 meter walk test with a patient or a client that's um you know we feel out of our comfort zone so i would encourage people wholeheartedly to recruit support and make that collaborative because just like a physio would be incredibly nervous about asking someone for a nutrition assessment i feel nervous about mm. even using a you know hand grip strength diameter that's it's new so um collaboration is key and it's all very new so the way that we're we're just commencing that conversation is having conversations with our colleagues about what those results are from some of those tests or just getting them to do a basic sit to stand or a 400 meter walk and telling us what the results are what do they mean how do I interpret that because I think having the understanding of what those those tests and assessments look like for an actual patient is very different to reading about it on a piece of paper. Yeah. And so do you do um, SGA routinely? Is that? Yeah. So we use the PGSGA in our practice, um, which is being challenging with a lot of telehealth happening recently um, because it is far more difficult to, uh, to get that accurate assessment and a lot of reliance on educating the patient in exploring what their, their muscle mass is and, you know, lots of empowering the individual to monitor those things and provide us feedback on how, you know, muscles are feeling. What's your interosseous look like yes. today? <laughs> it's, it's all very challenging with telehealth. So um, barriers there, but we're fortunate to have tools to at least be able to adapt to. And um, Louise, you're mentioning about doing a reassessment every time something changes. Um Lauren, how often do you get to see patients coming to you in a private practice setting? It's a bit different to someone who presents maybe to a cancer centre for their treatment and get routinely seen. Yeah. Um, and do they come vary. routinely? They generally do, absolutely. And, and look, we always present the, the option for 
routine um, monitoring as per evidence-based guidelines, whether or not that's feasible within means or if it fits in with other appointments, that's a whole other question. So generally we would um, review and assess weekly, fortnightly, maximum monthly, these clients, um, knowing that they're often linked in with other health professionals and we can collaborate and leverage off those touch points too to flag any concerns in between consultations. Yeah. And Janelle, what about in a, a dedicated cancer centre like where you're working, um, how does assessment, I mean, um, yeah, assessment go there? Yeah, I think picking up on what Louise and Lauren have said, I think that the multidisciplinary collaboration is key. So I think just First of all, in terms of malnutrition assessment, we've got pretty established pathways for, for assessment. We, too, use the PGSGA at PETAMAC, which a lot of um, cancer centres use as well. Um, and then we have clear pathways that define what happens depending on what score or category you are within the PGSGA and, and then individualised advice sort of follows after that. Um, so the malnutrition pathways are pretty well established. From a sarcopenia point of view, as we've been talking about, it's it's not as well established. There isn't a clear global consensus on the definition. I think that's the part where you have to start. You know, what definition are you actually applying around sarcopenia? And then that helps you pinpoint what assessments you actually do, what tools you apply. And then there's the practical. We can't CT image every patient exactly at the time point that we want. We're lucky in a cancer centre like Peter Mac. Um, CT scans are done fairly routinely on people, but it's not always when you would necessarily yeah. want them done. Um, and then, you know, the, the analysis and interpretation of a CT scan in terms of assessing muscle mass is, is not straightforward either. So there's complications there. So, um, look, as far as the assessment goes of sarcopenia, we're just working at the moment on what we can do to focus in on our inpatients. So we have uh, we're piloting a model at the moment which looks at assessing those at risk of sarcopenia, where the dietitian will assess the patient and and the physiotherapist will also assess the patient, um, and then provide um, individualized advice with outcome measures embedded within there. So we're we're testing out some new measures that uh, dietitians and physios haven't used before. And. So if you assess someone and you you suspect sarcopenia, um, do you have the ability to refer them onto a physio? Because I, I assume that um, physio intervention or exercise physiology um, is important for sarcopenia management and treatment. Absolutely. They go hand in hand. And you, you don't want just the dietitian doing the assessment and providing treatment. You also want that physio um, or an EP alongside doing their, the assessment. And then I guess collectively you're, you're providing them a treatment um, plan for that patient involving nutrition and exercise components. But um, it, it's, uh, I think with the um, pilot that we're doing at the moment, it's really honing in our um, what we're talking to patients about now. It, it's changing the way that we talk about protein and, and what people are eating. So, um, and I'm sure we're going to get onto that a little bit more. But Yeah, so I was going to say that's a nice segue into the, the <laughs> treatment part of this um, plan and we're talking nutrition treatment and we're talking treatment about malnutrition sarcopenia, not overall cancer treatment here, but it seems still seems like a really big area to cover in um, a position statement. Lauren, can you kind of give us a nutshell or an overview of what the recommendations around treatment are? 
Yeah, there's, there's a lot in there and there's a lot of focus, particularly with this position statement, rightly so, on the combined nutrition and exercise intervention, just like Janelle highlighted. And look, the analogy I draw is someone having chemo radiation, you wouldn't just rely on the, onco- the medical oncologist to provide that. You need the radiation oncologist as well. And likewise, with particularly cancer-related sarcopenia, but also malnutrition, we need that combined nutrition and exercise physiology or physiotherapy intervention. And the focus is very much on preservation and improvement of lean body mass, as well as the physical function of those muscle stores. So not just the presence of them, but how they translate to physical function throughout the day. And I wonder whether sarcopenia is um, lends itself better to talking to patients about that whole the reason we're interested is because it's about function it's about your activities of mm. daily living it's about all the things that you want to be able to do which is a bit more direct than malnutrition which kind of seems yeah. like oh I don't think so that's right and it's what it's what we say anyway but it's just really um I guess fine-tuning that language to make it so much more meaningful to an individual and look there are more than 650 skeletal muscles in the human body. And so you can imagine the detrimental impact that loss of muscle mass could have on an individual going through cancer treatment. And of course, how that's going to translate to if they can pour the tea from the kettle and put the washing on the line. And that's really important to focus in on um, when developing that really tailored intervention, what this means for you in real life. So the position statement is not really so much about saying what the treatment should be, like increase your protein, increase your energy. It's more about the delivery of that, the model of delivery of that treatment to the patients. That's what the yeah, position statement is. So there's a, there's a really strong uh, focus on the delivery and that it's so important to have that combined intervention, that it should be individualised and tailored to each individual, but also at their different stages of the cancer experience. And there's also an emphasis on health services ensuring that access exists to that multidisciplinary care. Um, Look, in saying that, there is certainly guidance and uh, advice on energy and protein requirements to support the preservation and improvement of lean body mass and skeletal muscle mass. Um, And you can find all of that detail in uh, in the position statement. I'm sure we'll link to it, but uh, yeah, I'm happy to state figures, but it's all there for you in practice. And that from a nutritional therapy standpoint, there certainly is mention of the importance of utilising oral, enteral and parenteral nutrition as indicated. Um, There's also, uh, really importantly, this position statement supports the use and consideration of ERAS protocols early recovery after surgery and the importance of minimising things like unnecessary fasting and supporting uh, good nutrition to prevent that muscle loss in the first place, particularly after a surgery in, in the context of ERAS. And the concept of the MDT is really well thought out in that the patient, of course, is at the centre of that treating team, but that the input required from health professionals is really fast. Yes, nutrition is important. Yes, that exercise, physical function piece is important. 
but so is psychology and mental health, um, social work and OT to look at actually how does that trans can, can somebody actually implement these strategies within their uh, their yeah. lifestyle. And that's a good point because obviously someone who's undergoing cancer treatment has got a lot to deal with, a lot going on psychologically, physically, yeah. in every possible way. So you can't expect one person in the healthcare team to be able to manage all those things. So Louise, um, in your setting, have you um, do you have systems in place to address the sort of treatment pathway for these patients? Yeah, definitely. I think a big key is obviously that referral pathway. Um, and once you've got that assessment and then following through on that individualised treatment, um, we really do the individualised side of things rather than have a, a process or protocolised system in place, um, primarily because of staffing numbers. And I guess the number of patients that we see coming through competing, compared to a larger uh, cancer centre. Um, I think from a from a rural perspective or a regional remote perspective as well, it's really important for both the rural dietitians and any treatment centre dietitians who might be seeing rural patients just to ensure that any treatment recommendations are able, able to be sustained locally in the community when the patient returns home. Um, and that whether this is a nutrition treatment or whether this is a physical or a psychological side of side of the management as well. So yeah, are, are the recommendations available locally? Um, if it's a nutrition support plan, what's their backup plan if there's delays in deliveries, things like that. As well as just being aware that they might not have access to that cancer MDT when they do return home. So what other options are out there for them? Um, and whether that's a really comprehensive handover to someone else who you might be able to skill share with, or what what services could they access virtually as well? Yeah, so it's really important then. I assume to look at where they are actually living um, and Absolutely. try and just find whatever you can support around them in that situation. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Janelle, anything else from your perspective on the treatment side of it? Yeah, I think the, the other point is around encouraging self-management for patients. I think probably as dietitians, we don't um, embed that into our into our interventions as much as we could. I think really giving our patients um, the tools to be able to adapt and and um, and change what they do at home. So um, you know, giving them really action based um, advice, not just you know eat more protein. Well, how do you do that? And give them different options. Give them information to take home. Direct them to online resources and other things that they can go and give them some idea of. You know, what are the red flags for you if this happens? Um, you know, what can you do? You talk to your GP or, you know, you can ring us on this number if, if you lose weight, um, you know, or you lose one more kilo in the next two weeks. So I think it's really equipping our patients and, and their carers and family members um, with as much as we can and not just always thinking we need to hold on to, you know, the care and the treatment that we provide to patients, actually give them the tools to be able to do so. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's a really good point to um, explain to patients what those red flags are, because we know that like even if you leave the doctor to get a script or something and you go home and you go, oh, what happens if, 
it doesn't agree with me. Or what happens if, and so all those what happens if sort of things, if they know that if they lose a kilo or two kilos, whatever you've set down, they need to get help and that's fine to get help rather than just sitting on it and worrying about it, um, then, yeah, you're giving control over to them and empowering them. So we've, we've mentioned um, a bit about the multidisciplinary team and how important that is. Um, can you guys, uh, from your experience, shed some light on sort of the best ways that dietitians can actually get the most out of that multidisciplinary team? Like what are your tips for really great communication with them? And um, I don't know, Louise, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, a few key tips from me would be being involved as much as you can. So attend those MDT meetings um, do joint consults um, with the oncologist or with another member of the MDT if you can. I think it really helps break down the barriers and it also puts you both on the same page as well as the patient getting the same key messages across. And are they open times. to that usually? Yeah, I've, I've certainly sat in, in quite a number of joint consults with surgeons or oncologists. Um, certainly not, it's not going to be appropriate in every situation. No. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's definitely beneficial whenever you possibly can can do that. And I know that that won't happen in all settings. You might be able to, if you're, say, not based at the treatment centre, you might be able to telehealth in and do like a bit of a shared handover or a shared consult. That could also be another option. Um, a big area as well, I think it's really important to consider the health literacy of the patient and their loved ones because they might not actually know or have ever even heard of some of these members of an MDT before. So I think it's really important that, um, you know, you explain the role of those other team members. You explain sort of why you feel that service would be beneficial, maybe how to access it, what to typically expect. And, and again, whether that's sitting in on, in on a consider, like, sorry, a joint consult, if it will just make the patient feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah. yeah. And probably... And need to explain what the dietitian's doing there as well. Absolutely, um, 100%. <laughs> um, Lauren, in a, a private practice setting, I know you've got some um, of members of the multidisciplinary team in your um, building, um, but how do you go about sort of enhancing those relationships with other members of the team? Yeah, look, having come from working with Janelle at Peter Mac for many, many years, I've certainly learnt a lot from the models of care at a really well-oiled tertiary hospital um, and trying to take some of those learnings to private practice and the community sector. So looking at models of care from a MDT standpoint and translating those to individuals who may not be linked in with the hospital still. So we spend a lot of time and energy uh, building connections and relationships with local but also um, nationwide health professionals who work in cancer care to provide that collaborative network so we can pick up the phone and say what do I do about this situation or there's some red flags here how do I best support this this patient um, setting up team meetings case conferences is is all very very important but I think for those working in cancer care particularly in the community or the private practice I'd really like to empower dietitians and others to not be afraid to pick up the phone and speak with the doctor or the oncologist. As Louise said, they're, they're generally really open and receptive to it and this can make such a huge difference to your understanding of the individual's condition and, and their treatment but also how best to support them nutritionally. But equally, it, it really does enhance our 
position as advocates in the profession. And the more conversations we can have with different members of the team, whether it's an oncologist at a rural hospital or an exercise physiologist at the local um, centre, that's all helping to create that conversation around cancer-related malnutrition and sarcopenia. And I think that's that's really good for maybe uh, some younger dietitians if they're listening that might have had their first experience or they've been in placements in big centres and then they might be in more of a sole practising. They can still take lessons and take expertise or things that they've seen in those big centres. They might not be able to set it up completely. But as you say, it still sets some ideas about how you can engage with the multidisciplinary team, even if they're not actually in the office next door. Um, So you can learn and take learnings from any setting to another one. And you'd be surprised where it takes you. You know, I've I've been in theatre with surgeons saying, well, just come, come and watch the scope. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now I know what... Now I know what Mrs. Smith's colon looks like. Great. But you'd be surprised where those relationships do take you. So I guess the, the one of the big issues is, you know, you are obviously all dietitians working in this area, but I'm sure there's a lot of oncology patients out there that haven't had access or haven't been offered access to a dietitian. And so how do you think we as a profession uh, and you guys more specifically in this area can sort of improve and enhance and support that access to dietetic care for oncology patients? Um, I don't know, Janelle, do you want to start? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, obviously there's some oncology patients that will get to see a dietitian. Somebody with a a head and neck cancer diagnosis will probably see a dietitian at some point or in fact, get to know a dietitian far too well. Um, so, but there's others that that won't get access to a dietitian. So we every day we reject referrals um, for patients whose risk for malnutrition or sarcopenia is not high enough, or their needs are not uh, considered critical enough for for our resources to spend time with that patient. And that's that's unfortunate. Um, but I think what it does is highlights that dietitians are not the only ones that can provide nutrition care. Dietitians should be spending their time with the complex patients and, and I guess, in a, within an acute setting, and then you have set up systems involving the multidisciplinary team that support those pathways um, but support nutrition care to be delivered by other people. Nurses are critical. Medical staff can deliver some element of nutrition care, as can other allied health professionals um, allied health assistants um, and others. Um, so I think absolutely, I think it's sort of going back to, to thinking about the foundations of good care. It's setting up models and pathways that support nutrition care from a, a person's cancer diagnosis right through to end-of-life care. Um, and so so that's the, the critical components of, like we were just talking about, building and maintaining relationships with our MDT, good communication, good coordination of care are all critical to all of those connections working. Um, but I think one of the areas we probably as dietitians can work on more is the patients that we don't see. What what can we do more for them? You know, is it that um, for those patients that we're, uh, we reject their referral in the hospital system or well, what information can they be sent or directed to or what group, um, you know, situations or classes or programs could they be referred to as an alternative to seeing a dietitian one-to-one in the setting. So there's some amazing cancer rehab programs around both in hospitals and in community settings 
Um, there's now emerging prehabilitation cancer programs and, and other, um, you know, supports through the Cancer Council in every state and, and nationally um, where people can, can get help and support around nutrition care. So, Louise, I imagine that this is even more challenging in remote um, communities and rural areas um, where there, oh, there may be just no access to a dietitian at all. Um, and how do other healthcare professionals get upskilled to be able to deliver nutrition advice to patients? Absolutely. It certainly is a big issue across the whole of Australia, really. Um, certainly, if you are a dietitian based regionally or rurally and you know that there's particularly a lot of, say, cancer patients in a certain area, you could certainly engage with that local health service, do some upskilling, do some basic education and training so that you can do some delegation or you can do some skill sharing with them so that the local health service would be able to at least do some of that basic screening for you. Maybe they've, they can give a basic education if you have a certain guideline or pathway that could be followed, or at the very least that they know the red flags of which we can now refer back to you. And this is going to be the easiest way to do it. And usually that's going to be by telehealth. You know, there's a lot of, particularly in the public system, patients don't get received funding to travel to see an allied health professional. So you do have to look at other ways of being able to provide that service. Yeah, and telehealth and phone is probably the easiest way to go, unless you can jump in on the same time as the patient is coming in to see a medical professional, for example. Um, another option, maybe not so much for the remote patients, but if you are, I would say, a rurally-based dietitian, you're quite a generalist and you might not have a huge amount of experience in oncology and maybe that's the barrier to providing that access to patients is maybe considering like a shared care arrangement like we mentioned before where you do joint consults with an experienced oncology dietitian and then maybe you do a couple of reviews by yourself and then feeding back to the treatment centre dietitian. Um, certainly as well, just... Yeah, just being quite aware of having that ability for patients to have access to care close to home is really important for, for their mental well-being. Um, and also if they're, if they say, end up in hospital locally, you've also then got that ability to better support the care of that patient when they present. Well, I'm going to get uh, each of you to give me... Um some resources or tools um, that you can recommend for uh, dietitians who might be listening that they can access um, when after they listen to the podcast. And we'll put those in the show notes. I noticed that um, COSA have a really lovely sort of infographic based on the position statement that has a nice diagrammatic um, representation of all the steps um, in the in the pathway through from identification to treatment. Um, but just to, to wrap up now, I'm, I'm thinking it would be really nice to have just a piece of advice from each of you on um, where to start when you're going from that, implementing the evidence and, and the position statement into practice. What would be your, your tip for people that might be in a new service or maybe they haven't worked in oncology before? You know, how do they, they do that transition? Because it can look like a big thing to try and get your head around. So I don't know, Lauren, do you want to start? So I throw you in the deep end? No, it's fine. I think my biggest piece of advice would be to get support. So don't try and do it alone because it becomes even more of a mountain than perhaps it is. So tap into 
resources that exist. There's lots of communities of practice that uh, operate. Um, Janelle leads one at, with the BCMC. Um, certainly I've got a group of clinicians in community private practice. We all meet quarterly to talk about oncology care um, and keep these conversations going. But find someone who works locally with you who or, or not even locally, could be, um, again, a phone conversation and just start the conversation about how you could do it and bounce ideas off one another and see if you can't divide and conquer just to get the ball rolling. Yeah. Louise? I think the biggest key area is whatever you do, make it sustainable. Um, we know that we just need to make it easy for yourself or for other people to pick up the work that you've done and to be able to continue this into the future. Um, so whether that means that you just focus on one particular area of implementing the evidence um, or whether you just, yeah, whatever you do, make sure that you embed it into local policies or guidelines, have those training resources available. As Lauren mentioned, maybe link in with others to help you support with that training side of things um, and also share your knowledge with your team because then that way it can build that sustainability into practice. If you're a sole dietitian, maybe that's um, sharing that knowledge with other health professionals so that they're also aware of what, what services are there and they can support you in different ways. And Janelle, you get the last golden words of wisdom. Well, I'm going to give a big plug for the position statement of cancer-related malnutrition sarcopenia. I would suggest go and read it. Um, it's, it'll take you a little bit to get through it, but have a look at it. And, and I would suggest if you want to know where to start, do a really quick and dirty gap analysis and see, do you meet the recommendations currently in relation to malnutrition and sarcopenia? And you probably won't meet them all, and that's okay. And pick some place to start where you feel like there's a gap. Um, and, and I would say if your gap is around screening, start there and pick something small to try and do. And, and like Louise and Lauren have said, engage your multidisciplinary team or reach out to someone who can help and support you and start small identify what that problem is and come up with a pragmatic way of, of getting the ball rolling um, and continually look at that pull more people in as you go and and you will make improvements and and that will no doubt translate into to better outcomes for your patients yeah and I think I think those pieces of advice, work across any field of practice too. So we're using oncology as our example today or specifically, and but those steps of identify the gaps in the practice. Um, if you're going to make changes, make sure they're sustainable so they're embedded and it's not just a one-hit wonder sort of thing. And then link up with others, whether that's other nutrition professionals or other people in the multidisciplinary team. Um, and that's a really good place to start. And we'll certainly put the link to the um, COSA position statement uh, in the show notes uh, and any other resources that the three of you would like to share. So I'd really just like to thank you so much for giving me your time today. I think it was like a great overview of managing malnutrition for cancer patients and sarcopenia in those patients. Uh, and as with all good podcasts at the end, please rate and review so that we get more of our dietetic community um, to listen and hear the expertise of um, these great dietitians. So thanks all very much for your time today. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, thank Jane. You, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. 
Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button. 